Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Awesome. What about you, Sebastian? Great. Uh, you know, it's been a busy week, but busy with not work stuff, more like life stuff. So um, hey, you well, you attended online NBR, right? That's this work, is right. right? That, that's right. I did watch some papers online, and so I feel like I am full of knowledge now. Um, so yeah, I guess that counts for work. Um, today we have a special guest. Her name is Kelly Marcard, and she's a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona. Kelly is a health economist and is currently studying health disparities under decisions that health providers make in a variety of situations. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Excited to have you here. Thank you. So, Excited to be here. Yeah. In order to get the conversation started, you want to tell us any fun facts about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, one fun fact is that I actually changed my major five different times in undergrad. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and it's only kind of a coincidence that I ended up in econ. It was during my accounting major phase where okay. they made me take an econ class. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of where, you know, I met a professor who got me interested in doing research. So that's here awesome. I am. <laughs> if undergrad would have been one year longer, would you be a vet? Like what was the next <laughs> step on the rotation? It would have been an actuary probably. Okay. Wow. So you'd, be, Wait, you'd so make a lot more money. <laughs> Tell us the full yeah. the full set of majors that you like converted. Okay, so I applied as a art major. Oh, okay. And then before I even got to school, I switched to engineering. Okay. <laughs> and then that's I, a shift. That is a shift. And then I changed. I didn't like my chemistry class, mm. so I switched to math only. Mm. <laughs> Then I didn't like my first proofs class, <laughs> so I switched to accounting. Uh-huh. But then that's where I realized I actually did like my proofs class. Mm. So I went back to math and then did like a dual math econ degree. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's And you still are managed to be a super successful person, so that's great, right? You're, hope, yeah. school, <laughs> you're doing good. You're going to the market this year. Yeah. So that's great. Awesome. For those of you that have yet to go to Kelly's website and check out her CV, she did her undergrad at Dayton. So she is a Dayton flyer and I she am. was there when they were like elite at basketball. All right. They oh. still are elite at basketball. All right. That's oh, they probably would have won last year. <laughs> that's right? what I said. They won, they won March Madness 2020 is what yeah. I said. And no one can tell me otherwise. Wait, they did? No, I don't know anything did. about sports. It was canceled this year. Is that score? <laughs> Wow, this is embarrassing. We're going to have to edit that part out. No, that is what makes this. I love sports. Um, (laughs) Listen, chess is really exciting. Um, Anyways, great. So, Kelly, let's hear a little bit about our research. Why in kind of like a broad terms is the work that you're doing? So I am interested in health economics and in particular finding ways to explain and hopefully rectify the disparities that we see in healthcare today. Um, I currently focus on mental health conditions. So these conditions are costly from an individual and a social standpoint, but there's a large concern that these conditions are often over and underdiagnosed. And in the process of this research, I really learned how subjective a mental health diagnosis is. 
And this is what got me interested in understanding how a physician makes a diagnosis decision. So let's let's get into that. So tell us a little bit more about your job market paper then. So in my job market paper, which is called Misdiagnosis, Physician Decision-Making in ADHD, I kind of take the traditional models of decision-making under uncertainty, and I, I apply them to a mental health setting, uh, particularly the doctor's decision to diagnose a child with ADHD or not. Right. So in general economic terms, I have this Bayesian learning model where a physician receives a patient signal, updates his prior regarding ADHD likelihood, and then decides to diagnose or not depending on his cost of type 1 versus type 2 diagnostic errors. Sorry, just to pause for a second. When, when we say providers, when you say doctors, are you talking about pediatricians, like this primary care who are making this, oh, yeah. so uh, this, this first setting, diagnosis? Right. Yeah. Okay. So in this setting, the majority are pediatricians. Okay. So in my data set, it's like, you know, 70% are pediatricians and the rest are. And are they going to the doctor because of behavioral issue or are they going for some other reason? So in my data, I have all appointments. Um, And so I haven't exactly broken up about how much is for a behavioral assessment in particular, but there's a lot that are just for, you know, yearly physicals or wellness checks. Right. And so they'll go in and the doctor might say, you know, how are you behaving at school or how is your child behaving at school? And that's mm-hmm. kind of where they can decide to mention concerns or not. And so what I do is I do a machine learning um, random forest prediction. I'm using the, the some keywords in the note to predict whether mental health was discussed with the doctor. Sorry, walk us through no, a little bit in, in very intuitive ways. What is the process of, of matching those I'm, I'm doing, it's called a bag of words model. Okay. So this is, this is pretty traditional and natural language processing. What you do is you basically just, for each patient note, you put it into a vector of words. And then for each DSM symptom, you put that into a vector of words. And you're just taking the cosine similarity between these vectors. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right? And so, but I have to make some adjustments because it, doctors aren't writing word for word what the DSM says. Um, and I'm I see. grouping words together to like keep negation. So for example, you don't want to compare, you know, a child is not paying attention to mm-hmm. child is paying attention. Right. So I right. do some a bunch of different things. Um, that's pretty traditional they're taking during. Okay. Wow. So you're really you're you're doing good work here. This is great. Like, <laughs> you have yeah, to really get seems, in the weeds here. That, yeah. I feel yeah. so untacked. And there's untacked. actually a lot of stuff you have to do with medical data because Doctors love their abbreviations and their acronyms. Mm. <laughs> so right. you even have LOL. to Exactly. Um, so you have to go and, you know, replace those and fix spelling mistakes, but you have to use like a medical dictionary as opposed to a regular dictionary. Right. right? So there's a bunch of different things that you yeah. So this is a really cool sort of research agenda in general, too, because like it gets at this idea of like something we think a lot about is like sort of applied statisticians, like type one versus type two error. And I like the way you frame this where it's like the cost of a missed diagnosis is not cement. It's not the same as like the cost of like a a miss, sorry, a missed diagnosis cost is not the same as a misdiagnosis cost. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's actually the title of my paper is missed diagnosis. um, Physician decision-making with ADHD. And I've been finding issues when I present that it's hard to. Oh yeah, I would not have gotten that. I just I just got it because Alex explained it. <laughs> yeah. So 
So yeah, so in my paper, I do find that physicians think of a missed diagnosis. So this is type two error, right? It's a case where a child has ADHD, but is not diagnosed. Physicians find this to be more costly than a misdiagnosis or a type one error. And actually wrapping this back up to my interest in how this can explain healthcare disparities, I'm able to show that the cost of diagnostic errors is heterogeneous by patient sex. So it's, it's higher for boys than for girls. And this can partially explain why the ADHD diagnosis rate for males is so much higher than it is for females. So that's super interesting. If people want to know more about your research, where do, should they go? Yeah, so I recently built a website. Um, it's kellymarquart.com. Um, and I'm posting, I have uh, my other, one of my working papers is up there and some slides for my job market paper and some other interesting things as well. So check that out. As well as two published papers. Right. Oh, <laughs> yes, fancy. Some two published papers as well with some co-authors. At, one was at University of Dayton, and then um, one was at University of Arizona with Jessamine Schaller and Price Fishback. You're in a great path. So uh, in this part of the episode, we like to now flip things a little bit and make Kelly ask us a question about anything related to professional life, um, so Kelly, what, what question do you have for us today? Yeah, so I've been thinking and looking at your research agenda. I was hoping um, as health economists, you could talk about how you get information on the health side of things. So for example, I had a roommate who was a resident physician and I was able to you know, get first person advice and, and information from her. Um, but I'd be interested to see how you guys um, navigate the health research aspect. Great. Um, Alex, do you want to go first for that? Yeah, sure. So I think like really broadly, like ignoring like health economist advice, um, one way to answer your question is like to try to be like lightning, right? In the sense that like following the path of least resistance is usually a good move. So when I started grad school, I really wanted to be a development economist. Like I didn't know much about sort of international poverty, but like it made me angry and it was very salient that it was a problem. And so I went to Arizona and they had, there were two people who sort of did development tangential work and then they left. So I was like, what do I do now? And I, I sort of realized some of my comparative advantage and stuff that I knew of was health related. So my dad worked in insurance for a long time. My mom's a physician. My sister has developmental disabilities. And then my partner who I wasn't um, seeing at the time when I started at Arizona, but about midway through, uh, she was a pediatrician resident at Arizona. So like all of the conversations and friend groups and things that I had sort of lent, lent themselves towards me developing expertise and these like weird niche topics that I was also really interested in, right? So a lot of my questions came from just having a beer or a coffee with people and learning about various institutional details or like stuff that I had thought about for a while, but didn't even know that was like unique sort of comparative advantage. I could tell you more stuff about like what I do to sort of like try to keep up on it and learn new things now. But I think it would have been sort of disingenuous to say like, oh, I always knew I wanted to do this. And I had been like reading textbooks and things like yeah. sort of get lucky, right? right? Right. Yeah. In a non-intentional way, it's happened just because I've been exposed to it from, from very different angles. Um, my, my interest also in mental health does come from the fact that my partner is a therapist 
And I learned a ton from that angle that I think I wouldn't know otherwise. And so again, I didn't start dating her because I was interested in mental health and I needed <laughs> advice. Um, if you listen to the podcast, please don't tell that's the reason why I started dating you. But it's it's just like a byproduct. So so maybe uh, to answer your question, for me, it's more been a journey of like, oh, I know certain people and then they kind of like inform my research rather than uh, the opposite. But I don't, you know, that's not necessarily the natural path. And I, I would guess that you're this way, Sebastian, but I'm not sure. Um, I also was like, because I'm annoying, I think, not afraid to like interrogate people that mm-hmm. I meet in social situations. Like, yeah. I'm always like curious about stuff and trying to listen to podcasts and things. But like, if I like hear somebody say something and I'm like hanging out with three cardiologists. I'm like, whoa, say, tell me about that. Like, wh- what weekend days are you off? Like, what, how's the rotation work? And it's sort of like right. always hunting around to see like, could I learn something here? Like, because what they just said sounded cool, but like, could it lead to like a feasible research design? And then right. there's probably like a lot of things that I'm not even aware of that I throw away on the spot. I'm like, oh, like, okay, couldn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But a few things that stick that work out, it's kind of neat when it does. Um, what, what about you? How, how do you feel like you've gotten some, some feedback? So I guess it started actually with a paper that was presented in one of my labor classes. It was the um, elder 2010 paper. And right. So it showed like where a child's birthday falls in relation to the school cutoff date is like a strong predictor of ADHD. And so that got me super um, interested in this idea of misdiagnosis. And so I would ask around, right, but like I'm in an econ grad program where a bunch of people that I'm surrounded with just do a bunch of math and economics. And so I ended up buying not a textbook, but just a book um, by um, Hinshaw. It was called The ADHD Explosion. Oh, and it was it was a very interesting read and it gave me a bunch of different um, research ideas. But what you need right to get research is you need to get data. And so that's where unless you're uh, unless you're a theoretical economist, we don't want to. Oh, we don't yeah. want to. Oh, yeah. Then yeah. you need a pencil. Yeah, to be a genius. <laughs> that's right. Um, so that's kind of when I went to my advisor and was like, okay, what data can I get? Right. And so we're lucky enough to we have a pretty collaborative department um, and friends in the medical school. Right. We even have like Keith Joyner, who is an MD, and he's in the econ department. That's fantastic. And so, yeah, so I was able to talk with people at the medical center uh, as ways to get data. And then Keith set me up with his friend who works as a psychiatrist. And so I was able to get meetings in grad school. Right, right. No, and that's that's a great way of thinking about it. Maybe the mindset you have when you when you need like that expertise from the outside is have that journalistic mind. Like um, I was invited to give a talk to UC Davis and I was writing a paper on mental health and I just read this note from my psychiatrist who is at UC Davis. So I sent her an email saying like, I love to chat about this. Mm -hmm. Um, I want your perspective. And so, you know, just look doing that, that still, you know, counts as research in the sense you're doing research in terms of like interviewing and talking to people and getting that knowledge from them. So like two of the things you both sort of casually mentioned, I think are important here and I probably more important than like we initially gave credit to that like openness to like other sources of information other than like an economics paper or something about something. Right. So full disclosure, I also went to Arizona 
Keith Joyner was on my committee <laughs> dun, dun, dun. too. He rocks. <laughs> so shout out to Keith Joyner. Yep. But just like talking with him is a really good way to learn about what physicians think. And then yeah. my advisor, who is a co-author of yours, right? Price Fishback is mm-hmm. always big about reading books about things. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. simple idea, like if you're going to do a project on something, probably you aren't the first person to ever think that this is interesting. Maybe yeah. you're the first economist, but probably not. Mm-hmm. But like there's someone wrote like a amazing dissertation on it. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. a good jumping ground to, to learn a lot of stuff. And don't um, just read econ papers or even just yeah, help econ absolutely. papers, right? Like read medical, like the medical literature too. Sociology too. Uh, yeah, one, so oh, yeah. a, a tip, maybe like a straight tip here is um, I use academic securator. I don't know if that's how you say it, but is um, it's basically a, an engine, search engine that you use to search for articles, but it has a ton of disciplines. And for each topic, you can select which kind of disciplines you want. And that's been a really cool way for me to like expand my knowledge of just like the regular set of econ journals um, into, uh, so there's a project that I was talking about, um, uh, small loans and and finance. um, And I found a lot on kind of like sociology demography of that relation between those and health that I don't think I would have found it if I just kept my narrow minded in economics. So. And also not just like read other people's papers um, in other fields, but like talk to other people. So mm-hmm. there was a, the only reason why I thought about using clinical doctor notes is because we had a seminar in um, the business school, which was like a uh, topic was healthcare, but from different departments. And so someone in the MIS department was talking about how she used clinical doctor notes to help score an autism diagnosis. I kindly asked if I could, you know, sit with her and talk to her about how she did it. And that's, that also encouraged like my research agenda as well. Yes. In addition to being open to exploiting or just otherwise communicating with people, you know, or just end up serendipitously meeting. uh, One of the things that I think both Sebastian and I do and other people do as well is just try to keep up with non-economic sources of information that are relevant to your discipline. So for instance, I'm a health economist. I have uh, papers that research uh, environmental economics. So I subscribe to two or three different sort of like news aggregators that get sent to my inbox every morning. Uh, They're actually via morning consult and stat. And those just tell me things that are related to sort of policies and uh, things that um, I maybe wouldn't otherwise stumble across. Um, I don't know if Twitter is like a great source of information, but you could imagine using Twitter uh, to, to, come across those different types of information too. Sorry, you can hear my daughter here right now. Um, She's got some thoughts on this. Uh, And also, you know, both Sebastian and I, we read all sorts of different books on a range of different topics that we're interested in. And you'd be surprised what sort of uh, random parts of books that maybe even seem unrelated to the discipline that uh, we're in end up influencing our research or giving us ideas. Absolutely. It's important to have range, to be open. That's things we've learned, I feel like today is episode yeah. which is great. and we learned about kelly's awesome job market paper oh heck yeah that's right yeah. Well, that is really interesting i'm definitely I'm, it's gonna be in my long list of, of things i need to read yeah like four percent sure. of kids office visits or four and a half percent result in an adhd diagnosis yeah. oh wow would have known it right just that simple fact <laughs> mike publishes paper yeah. <laughs> that's great yeah i'll let you know once there's an actual paper available for the public to read okay (laughs) fair enough (laughs) 
All right, that's a great place to pause. So, Kelly, every week we like to wrap up the episode with a recommendation for the week. This could be anything, a quote, a book, episode, movie, you choose. So what is your recommendation for the week for this episode? Sure. So my recommendation is um, kind of based on the text analysis that I actually do in my paper, and it's how I learned um, a little bit how to do it. It's a website um, on Data Camp by Debbie Liskey, and she uses um, text from Prince lyrics, and she shows how you can do things. Yeah, so she shows how you can do things from sentiment analysis to predicting whether the song makes a top chart. And so if anyone's interested in learning NLP in R, they can learn it there. I wonder what the word cloud of some of those songs would look like. <laughs> she, she actually, I think those are on there. They're really interesting. That's amazing. <laughs> what is the sentiment of Purple Rain, Kelly? Oh, gosh, I forget. But that is on the website. Mm. It Check just it comes out. back as Purple Rain. <laughs> purple Rain is sentiment. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. Okay. Um, Alex, what is your tip of the week? So I uh, I have this link on here to a, a chart that I use now to get out of teaching certain things. So I teach a lot of master's students, and I teach them statistics. And uh, the sort of other instructors that uh, also teach statistics teach all these things like ANOVA and chi-squared tests. And I just like to teach linear regression. And my argument has always been that uh, all these other things are just linear regression. So this uh, this chart that I have a link to is wonderful. And it basically shows you a bunch of common tests, their names, how to do them in R, uh, why they're linear regressions at their core or linear models at their core, and then a little picture that shows you just in case you don't believe them. So this is wonderful, and I'm going to give it to my students in the future now, too. Um, And for the record, I do explain what ANOVA is in these things, but I just don't. Uh, You're going to have to explain what ANOVA is later, Alex. Well, we could do a whole <laughs> podcast on it. Uh, yeah, okay, great. Really, I don't want to do it. Uh, that's great. That's a yeah, website for, by Jonas Christopher Lindelof, so we'll put it in the show notes uh, there. Um, my recommendation is for everyone, especially economists, to go listen to the episode of the podcast Unlocking Us, which is by Brene Brown, where she interviews Harriet Lerner. She's a PhD clinical research psychology. And they go on these two episodes talking about apologies, how to uh, think about the right apology, the right thing to say, what not to say. Uh, Something, for example, that I learned is that be careful of having an apology that then has the word but or, you know, like, uh, I'm sorry, but, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Or using the word you, it's like, I'm sorry, your feelings are hurt as opposed to I'm sorry, I hurt you. So anyways, I thought that would be great for academics, um, and I'll put it in the show notes, uh, but that's my recommendation for the week. <clears throat> great. Before we head out, uh, Kelly, do you want to say any few last words? Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to thank my advisor, Gautam Garasankaran, um, for all the help he's done, and also want to thank you guys for having me on this podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Great. Uh, Well, thank you so much for being in the podcast, and I hope everyone took something from it. You can learn more about Kelly's research at our website that we'll have the link down in the show notes. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Thanks.